every family and every culture has its own unique ways of celebrating events. Some people like loud music. Others like soft classical music. Some love large crowds and gatherings. Others prefer small gatherings. Some people eat like rabbits. And some people eat like wild beasts. I'm not sure which of those you think I would be characterized by, but we'll uh, leave that unsaid. Whatever the differences that uh, there may be from one celebration to another, from one culture to, the no- to another, from one family to the other, one thing is sure, you can tell when someone is celebrating. You can tell when someone is celebrating. It's usually pretty obvious. And as we read and think through a few gospel passages this morning, uh, it will be obvious to us that there is a celebration taking place in these texts, and it is a celebration of a coming and a promised king. A coming king, a promised king. And this morning, as we worship our Lord in the study of His Word, we will notice three aspects of the triumphant entry of our Lord Jesus Christ into the city of Jerusalem. Uh, very simple. First, the celebration of the king. Secondly, the character of the king. And finally, the conquest of the king. And since I went long last week, I intend to not go long this week. I'll spare you some of the time that we spent last week. We'll start with the celebration of the king. And as we behold this scene that is laid out by Luke in Luke chapter 19, and we'll compare some of the other Gospels, at least briefly, we can observe two very different responses to Israel's Messiah. There in verses 37 and 38 was a, a mass of people that were receiving Him gladly. Look at verses 37 and 38 of Luke 19. As He was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So we have this grand reception, this joyous reception. We know that just previous to this, the Lord Jesus had raised Lazarus and that caused a greater multitude to be gathered. So we have this large Group And then in Matthew, Matthew calls this a very great multitude. In verse 48, we see what kind of a reception he had among this group. It says in verse 48, they did not find anything they could do, the Pharisees, for all the people were hanging on his words. They, were, they wanted to hear what he had to say. And in John, the Gospel of John, John portrays the words of the Pharisees saying, look, The whole world has gone after Him. There's this uh, perception that the masses of the crowds were all for Jesus, celebrating Jesus. The, the, The Lord Jesus is entering into Jerusalem on a donkey. There are clothes strewn in this path. There are way of palm branches being waved around. People singing and shouting. And yet there's another group behind the scenes that has another aspect, another thought in their minds 
All the while of this grand reception, the religious leaders were emphatically opposed to Jesus. Look at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Verse 47, take a look. And he was teaching, Jesus was teaching in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. So there's this other other problem. We've got groups of people receiving him, praising him, and another group wanting to destroy him, wanting to stop the praise. Well, right in the heart of the passage, we see what the real problem was. Jesus. He's, Jesus is no ordinary man. He's the God-man. And Jesus knows all things. You remember in John chapter 2, Jesus turns the water into wine. All these people, oh, look at this, this is amazing. And the people, the people, it says, believed him. But this statement that John makes under the inspiration of the Spirit is that Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew what was in them. They were only interested in the, the miraculous sign, not the person that is being signified. Not the Messiah being demonstrated. See, it's not about getting something from God. It's about knowing God. It's not about, oh, if I will just believe God, all of my problems will go away. Good luck with that. That doesn't work. The problems remain. It's not about what we get from the Lord. It's about having Him. Him. He is the grand and glorious inheritance that we receive as his children. What a glorious thing he gives to us. This group had a, an external demonstration. Let's see what Jesus, how Jesus deals with this. Starting in verse 41 of Luke 19. When he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. What do you mean he wept over? These people all came from all over the place to sing praises to him and to throw their clothes on the ground and to wave palm branches around. What, what do you mean? You're crying. Verse 42, he said, What uh, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Will you read the end of the verse with me? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know the time of your visitation. Oh, he, he raised Lazarus from the dead. We want, we want to be there for this event. He's coming in. Uh, this, this is great. He's, I've, I heard about him feeding the 20,000 people. You know, it says 5,000 men. Uh, we, we heard about him healing a blind man and, and, and loosing the tongue of someone who couldn't speak and opening the ears of those that couldn't hear. We, we heard about this. And we heard about the time he, he walked on the water. This is incredible. And, and I remember that time they were telling us about it where this guy was possessed by demons and everyone was afraid of him. And he, the guy was... Uh, even held with chains and he kept breaking the chains and Jesus came and he cast the demons out and the guy was calm sitting in his right mind. This, this guy's amazing. I, I want something to do with him. And Jesus said, here's the problem. You didn't know the time of your visitation. Now that term visitation is a, is a, is a, a packed word. It has the idea of God coming to deliver. Deliver. 
deliverance. Deliver from what? The Roman government, of course. Poverty, of course. Disease, of course. Demons, of course. Those are only fringe problems. If you think your bank account is your biggest problem, you don't understand. If you think that your bum leg is your biggest problem, you don't understand. If you think your relationship problem with with someone that's very important is your biggest problem, you don't understand. When God comes to save, he comes to save eternally, not temporally. Now, in that eternal salvation, there are lots of temporal things that God deals with, and it's wonderful. And I'm thankful for restored relationships that can come as a result of the salvation that God offers. But we don't come to Jesus to be have our human relationship restored. We don't come to Jesus just so that my drug addiction will go away. Just so that my my alcohol compulsion will go away or my pornographic addiction will go away. We don't come to him to fix that. We come to have what he really offers. Eternal salvation that can deliver us from drugs and alcohol and pornography and fix broken relationships. It's about him. You didn't know. You thought I was here to give you bread. I didn't come to give you bread. I came to give you life. That you might have it abundantly, eternally. I wanted to deliver you from your own sin and the consequence of your sin and an eternal punishment separated from God because your sin warrants rightly the judgment of God. I came to deliver you from the just wrath of God. But they didn't know the time of their visitation. And Jesus weeps. He weeps for them. It's quite a scene. We're pretty familiar with the scene. You've got Jesus riding in on a donkey. A donkey that had never been ridden on before. The the colt of a donkey. This baby donkey. (laughs) Coming in. And he's riding in. And there's a symbol. It's symbolic of humility and purity as he comes in riding on this never ridden on before donkey. And then the clothes are strewn in the street. This symbolizes submission. The people are saying, yes, you are significant. You are king. They're throwing their clothes in the street to symbolize that he is exalted. This was done in the book of 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 13. And the people, as they were throwing their clothes in the streets, were saying, Jehu is king! Jehu is king! And that's the similar imagery that's going on. Jesus is coming in. The people are saying, you're the king. We also see the palm branches being waved around. It's a symbol of nationalism and victory. Finally! Finally! Here we are! We've, We've been waiting for this victory the Hasmonean dynasty delivered us before, but now we have the Messiah. He's going to come and He's going to deliver us from the Romans. Didn't come to do that. I didn't come to do that. Not this time. I have a different mission this time. There's the proclamation of the crowd. You know, they were, they were crying out for salvation and they were using messianic expressions. These will be on the screen. There will be four... Uh, passages from each of the Gospels recording this event. The crowd cried out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Now we read earlier from Psalm 118. That's a Hallel Psalm. The people would sing this on the way up and away from the temple at certain celebrations, two different celebrations. Um, This is a Messianic proclamation. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And then in Matthew you see, Hosanna to the Son of David. 
Now, the son of David, remember that David was promised an eternal kingdom? And upon that throne, David would sit forever? But we understand as the progress of Revelation, as the Bible unfolds, that this David is not David, the one that was the sweet psalmist of Israel, but David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed that God promised would be blessed, the seed that would crush the head of the serpent. He's the David spoken of. In Matthew, uh, excuse me, Mark 11, we have this proclamation, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So they recognize he's coming in. This, this is a kingdom. This is a kingdom event. This is, this is a messianic event in the Gospel of John. You have Hosanna. Oh, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So they recognize it. They're, they're seeing it. This is what's going on. This is a glorious celebratory event. Can you see it? And this is all coming to pass, having been foretold by Zechariah the prophet in Zechariah 9.9. Now, Zechariah 9.9, this is going to come up three, two, two or three times in the rest of our, our gathering together. It'll be on the screen each time. Zechariah 9.9, listen to what, what God's Word says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is He. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a donkey. The call for the people in this event was to rejoice and to shout aloud. This is a, a glorious, celebratory scene. This is the celebration of the king. There was cause to celebrate. This isn't like when you're forced to decide between the lesser of two evils or whatever else you would like to say about that. This is the coronation of the most glorious king the promised king. A king who would rule in peace and justice and joy, gladness and patience. So the first thing we notice about the triumphal entry is the celebratory nature of the event. The second is the character of the king. And we'll notice this from, again, Zechariah 9.9 because um, we could turn to all the parallel passages uh, to notice this, but Zechariah captures it perfectly. In Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Ready? Righteous. There's part of his character. And having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. These are important attributes of the character of our Savior and our coming King. He is righteous and He is humble. We'll start with humble and then move on to righteous. We're going to do it in, in uh, reverse order here. His humility is demonstrated in this scene. You know it, right? Because a king doesn't ride on a donkey. Eeyore is riding the king into Jerusalem. That's not generally how it goes. What, what, would, you, what would you choose today? Like a Clydesdale? <laughs> Giant hooves <laughs> with a, a beautiful saddle. Probably a chariot behind with the, these glorious ornate uh, arms that go around the, 
the, the horse and pulled, and he's pulled in the buggy. One, one of these kinds of scenes. This is, this is how a king enters the town. But not Jesus. Comes riding on a donkey. The creator of heaven and earth and all that in them is. The one who spoke the world into existence. Rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. This is the character of our king. This is the character of our Savior. This uh, humility is demonstrated clearly in passages like Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Having this mind among yourselves, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This is our humble Savior taking on human form, being fully human, being willing to set aside his free exercise of his divine attributes. In other words, he could have known everything at all times. He's God. He knows everything. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He can do anything at any moment. But yet, he suppressed the free exercise of these attributes that, that it, when he could have fed himself when Satan was tempting him, he said, no. No. It's not by bread. Every word of God. Every word of God is what I need. I don't need the bread. He could have turned the stones into bread. He's God. But he suppressed the free exercise of his divine nature. And another time, he was going to go on vacation, right? We're going to have some leisure. Remember that? They go across the sea, get to the other side, a crowd's gathered. Well, vacation's over. And he preaches. Shocker. That's what he came out to do, remember? He preaches. He preaches the gospel. preaches the truth. And it's late at night. He says, the, kid, the, the disciples, the kids, they say, hey, send them home. No. Give them something to eat. No suppressing his divine attributes there. Why? Because that was the Father's plan. And so the free exercise of his power, the free exercise is what he set aside. The free exercise of his Understanding, he set aside. That's why he could say, no man knows the time of my return except the Father. Well, as the divine second person of the Trinity, he knows everything. But as the God-man, he willingly set aside the free exercise of his knowledge. It's unfathomable. But this is the humility of our Savior. His humility is seen in his call for people to come. In his call for people to come to him, his humility is in full view. Listen to these words in in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am what? Gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He gentle gentle and lowly in heart this is who he is you know this humility is sorely lacking in our day it's lacking in the political realm in academia 
in the sports scene, in the entertainment industry, and unfortunately in God's church. A prominent leader addressing board members of, that, of a prominent denomination not too long ago made this statement. I hate the politics of the, I'm going to leave the denomination out of it, and I don't say that as an outsider, I say that as an insider these last four years. Some of the lowest points in my leadership have been when I found myself participating in them, jockeying for position, continual self-promotion, backroom deals followed by spin in the front room, strategizing like brothers are your enemy, feeling like others see you as their enemy, getting to the point where you wonder if you can trust anyone, even as you start to wonder how trustworthy you've become. You see, this is in the church of God. These are regenerated people. Humility is sorely lacking. And yet our Savior is the epitome of humility. And you can see it in this scene that God sets for us. Now, we weren't there to see it with our eyes. But we can see it in the text of Scripture. Here's Jesus, the Lord of glory, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, humble. Of great importance also is the righteousness that is mentioned in Zechariah 9.9. Not only does he have humility at the end of the verse, but toward the middle of the verse, it says he has, he's righteous. He's righteous. Well, this is of utmost importance. It is his righteousness coupled with his full humanity and his full deity that enabled Jesus to be the perfect Savior. Listen to this passage. You're familiar with it. From Hebrews 4, verse 14 talks about how Jesus passed through the heavens. Verse 15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. So you read that last few verse, few words, yet without sin. Holy, you can see hum- uh, holiness there, but you see righteousness there. Everything he did. Everything he said, every act, every thought, every deed, right. Righteous. If he were not righteous, his sacrifice would have done nothing for us. He needed to be the spotless Lamb of God. He needed to be a holy Lamb of God. So his righteousness is of utmost importance. This is his character. Holy and righteous. This discussion of his righteousness will flow right into our next main idea, or the third aspect that we note from this triumphal entry, the conquest of the king. The conquest of the king. This comes in two stages or phases. During the first advent, that's his incarnation, during the first advent, he came to bring salvation from our sin. Salvation from our sin. You see this in, uh, again in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. He's the one who brings with him salvation. And in his humility and based upon his righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He came to offer you eternal salvation. He came to offer you forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And he laid his life down to make the greatest exchange in history. If you're a believer, 
I would encourage you to memorize this next verse that I bring to your attention, if you don't have it memorized already. This speaks about the greatest exchange in history. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So God made the one who was without sin to become sin. So the sinless Son of God became sin, even though He didn't sin. So that we, who are sinners both by nature and by choice, could become the righteousness of God. So the righteous Son becomes sin so that the sinner could become righteous. This is the greatest exchange in history. All based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The humility of Jesus Christ. He laid His life down because He came having with Him, bringing with Him salvation. Oh, save us. Hosanna! Save us! Save us from what? He came to save you and He came to save me from my sin. You from your sin. That we might have life. Have you received this offer of the gift of salvation that's been offered to you by our Savior? That's the first stage. He came to bring salvation to us. There's a second stage that that is going to take place still in the future of this salvation, this conquest that we talk about. There's a coming day when the Lord Jesus will return. And when He returns... The scene will be unmistakable, fearful, and majestic. Will you turn with me please to Revelation chapter 19? We have a coming king. In his first advent, he came to deal with sin. To provide salvation. In his second advent, he will also deal with sin but not to rescue people from sin, but to judge people in their sin. Uh, It is a devastating and yet majestic scene. Look at verse 11 to begin with. Revelation 19.11 Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness He judges and makes war. This is a far cry from riding in on a donkey. This is a different scene altogether. Look at verse 12 and following. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on His robe and on His thigh He has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, 
And with a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather to the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. I told you this was a fearful scene. It is that. This is, a, this is one of those scenes that make an honest reader pause and say, I, I, don't, I don't relish everything described in this scene. But this is what God tells us is going to happen when Jesus comes as King again. He's going to judge the nations for their rebellion. Why? Because they didn't know the time of their visitation. Jesus came to save. And that offer of salvation has gone out every single day. Every single day. The offer of salvation goes out and people ignore the call to come. Come to me. Come to me. Repent. Believe the Gospel. Have your sins forgiven. Have righteousness added. Receive eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It goes out every single day. The visitation is now. And if people ignore that visitation, this day will come upon them. It is an unpleasant scene in some of its description. He will bring to nothing those that oppose Him. There are also glorious parts of this scene that we cannot ignore. First of all, our Savior. On a triumphant white horse, in victorious garments, with glorious names. But what about verse 14? Look, look at verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine Linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Who are these people? Well, if you understand how this is described throughout and what he's been leading to about this white, these white garments, you'd understand that these are those whose sins have been forgiven. These are those whose sins have been forgiven based upon the humble sacrifice and the pure righteousness that Jesus Christ demonstrated during His first visit. You see, even in this scene that we have that that makes us 
it makes us sober in our thinking. We still see the saving work of Jesus Christ because those armies following are those who have come to know that my sin warrants the judgment that is about to be poured out in this scene. My sin. I deserve what's being poured out in this scene. And yet, Jesus took upon Him the penalty. Took upon Him the consequence. Took upon Him the wrath of God poured out in that scene. On Him, hanging on a cross as the just for the unjust. So that He might bring us to God. And we, those that have trusted Christ, follow behind this Lord Jesus arrayed in white linens, pure and righteous. Not because of our righteousness, but because of His. And so even in the midst of this devastating scene, we see the redemption of Jesus Christ that resulted from His first appearing when He rode in humbly and righteously having salvation that has been offered every day since. So I call you, I call you to think about the first visitation of the Lord Jesus as a way to prepare you for the second visitation of Jesus. I call you today, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Don't try to reconcile God to you. The world today, and unfortunately so much of professing Christianity, molds God in their image. This is how I perceive God to be. And I could never worship a God like that. Oh. Well, if you can't worship a God as described in the Bible, then you ain't worshiping God. If you want to reconcile God to you, you're not going to be on the right side of this equation in Revelation chapter 19. You and I need to be reconciled to Him. And thank God, and I mean that with all of the reality of those words, thank God that Jesus Christ has done what is necessary to reconcile us to Himself through the blood of His cross. Amen. This is why He came. He didn't come that people would throw clothes on the streets on that first advent. It was predicted. It was prophesied. And it had to happen. But that's not why He came. He came to hang bloodied and naked and humble on a cross bearing God's wrath against my sin. That's why He came. And God gloriously, victoriously raised Him up three days later. And we celebrate every day since God raised him from the dead. Because we have a risen Savior. He's the first fruits of those who slept. And so there's more, more to come. He has done all the work necessary. You need to, to do two very important things. Simple. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Realize that your sin is an offense to God. That it warrants God's righteous judgment. Turn from it and turn to Jesus Christ. He came to bring salvation. Listen to these words from Romans chapter 10. Verse 9, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be 
saved. He's bringing salvation. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. He brings salvation. This is who he is, and this is what he's done. Verse 13 of the same passage, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Yeah, no wonder people were celebrating. They were celebrating a humble, righteous, promised king who is the savior of the world. And the Pharisees wanted Jesus to rebuke the crowds, but it was his appointed time. And if they didn't celebrate, and if they didn't cry out, and if they didn't rejoice, it would have been the rocks crying out. They would have done it. It was his appointed time. Israel missed the day of their visitation. My friend, wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever your situation is, don't miss the day of your visitation. He has come, righteous and having salvation. The offer is there. Turn. Turn to Him and receive life. Let's pray. Father, we come before You recognizing the humility and righteousness and perfect salvation offered to us by your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask you, for those that do not yet know him, that you would turn their eyes from themselves and to your Son, that they might have life. Help us as believers to be rejoicing in the benefits that are ours in knowing Jesus and to recognize that that second visitation will come and will be with him but the days that we have left here on earth are to help people to understand that this visitation has come offering salvation and we we are proclaimers of that gospel message use us to draw people's attention to your son and our savior that they might have life and have it eternally in jesus name amen